0: Hey everyone, welcome to Simplexity, where we simplify the complexities of life and turn the complicated
1: into common sense. Here, I'll speak with supremely intriguing, refreshingly forthright experts, artists, scholars, scientists, entrepreneurs, leaders, and human beings with unique vantage points, who can help expand our knowledge of what's happening on the planet while discovering more about ourselves. This is a space for curiosity, contemplation, and meaningful, sometimes difficult, conversations. To boot, each episode will end by gathering the key takeaways and turning them into short affirmations that you can repeat and use to transform your reality and stay charged up and resilient throughout the week. I look forward to hosting the journey and learning alongside you. So let's step into the world of Simflexity. It's anything but small talk. Peace.
0: This Lord ran out of luck. I'm Jason Horton. I'm Rebecca Lieb. And this is Ghost Town.
1: Great Britain. I would like to go there. I I feel like it's a underrepresented area. We don't often head over to Jolly Old England.
0: I'm ready to be charmed.
1: You ready to be charmed? You ready to fry fly that British flag? Yeah. Is that yeah? I said I said fry. Yeah. I think I was thinking about fish and chips. Yes. But was, anyway, okay.
0: <laughs> I went to my honeymoon in London.
1: You did? I did. Yeah. Man, I didn't mm, know that. Yeah. Did you guys? Pretty
0: cool, right? <laughs> Everything I do is cool. pretty cool, huh? It's pretty cool. It's yeah. pretty
1: sweet. Did you uh, go to Harrod's and no, have it's too tea expensive. The Savoy, no.
0: But oh. I'll tell you very very quick. I know people don't like when we go off. Uh, I like I, I it. went to uh, this is the. F- Second time I went there, Mm -hmm. I went to Abbey Road for like a YouTube thing, Mm -hmm. and I was inside Abbey Road, and I played on the piano that Lady Madonna was written on.
1: Damn.
0: Yeah, pretty cool of me. It's
1: pretty cool. Now, back to my dating life. (laughs) 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 Just kidding. Mm -hmm. It's the same. Anyway, we're going to talk about the disappearance of Lord Lucky Lucan, who is this British aristocrat. And it is apparently one of the great unsolved mysteries of British history. Which, as an American, I don't give a shit. I am like my McDonald's. I like my big country boots. I like my uh, Jesus. I like mm. this fine country.
0: Cargo, cargo shorts. <laughs> big old cargo shorts.
1: Cargo, shorts. i putting all my shit yep. in those cargo shorts. They carry some cargo across the plains to get to gold mining territory. His name was Richard John Bingham, 7th Earl of Lucan, He vanished in 1974 after his children's nanny, Sandra Rivet, was battered to death in the basement of his family home without a trace. 1970s, I love it. I know, it's dirty. Perfect. It's dirty. So, um,. There's so many different theories about this, this case, but the details of this are also very interesting. And so if you have a theory, again, get at us afterwards. Basically, Lord Lucan was an Anglo-Irish aristocrat. I keep saying cat, aristocrat. Um, That's a movie uh, that was made in the 90s, 80s. He was born in 1934. He was an evacuee during the Second World War. He lived in Toronto and New York before returning to the UK, where he had nightmares and struggled with his belief in God. When he got older, he attended Eton College, where he started gambling quite a bit. He would supplement his pocket money with income from bookmaking, placing his earnings into a secret bank account, and regularly left his school grounds to attend horse races, go to casinos, maybe even smoke a cigarette. According to his mother, his academic record was far from creditable. In 1953, he became a second lieutenant in the National Service and continued to gamble. And this is really a through line of all this. This is gambling. It's this undercurrent. And it, I think, weighs in on a lot of maybe, like, why he did certain things that he did. On leaving the Army in 1954, Lucan joined a London-based merchant bank called William Brandt Sons & Co. And let's just say, like, as an adult, this guy had very expensive tastes. He would go hang in the Bahamas. He would race powerboats. He drove an Aston Martin He became a regular gambler and an early member of John Aspinall's Claremont Claremont Gaming Club located in Berkeley Square, which is a very um, exclusive gaming club for wealthy, wealthy, wealthy white men. He often won at games of skill like bridge and backgammon, but he also had huge losses. On one occasion, he lost 8,000 pounds or about two thirds of the money he received annually from various family trusts. So he's like taking this money. He's gambling it away. Another uh, time at the casino, he lost uh, 10,000 pounds. And again, it doesn't feel like a lot, but like given the time period, given all of the money that he, all of his privilege, et cetera, it's just like, bye. So that time his stockbroker uncle by marriage, John Bevan, helped him to pay his debt and he repaid his uncle. But again, that was, this is also a, a very big theme with him too. It's this gambling, money going back, money coming forward. He left, uh that bank that he worked at in 1960 and shortly after he won 26,000 pounds playing Chemin fer, which I'm not sure what that game is, it sounds very um, wealthy and like you would do it at a very nice velvet table with uh, lots of glamorous women around you. Uh, a colleague had been promoted before him and he protested and then gave up his job saying, why should I work in a bank when I can earn a year's money in one single night at the tables? He traveled to the United States where he played golf, power powerboats. He drove his trusty Aston Martin all around the West Coast. He was even considered for the role of James Bond in the cinema adaptations of Ian Fleming's novels. His life was just, like, sick.
0: He was sort of the real deal he in was, that sense. Yeah, he just, like, lived Minus it. Minus the spy part, I suppose.
1: Yeah, and, like, other, like, fun technology. But, yeah, he he was very handsome, too. We'll put up some pictures Dude, well, like, was James Bond with a horrible gambling problem. Can't all be perfect, you know? In 1963, Lord Lucan married Veronica Duncan, and they had three kids. Their marriage fell apart in 1972, and a bitter custody battle ensued, which Lucan lost. He began—and this like, this is really where the, the turn happens. He began to spy on his wife and record their telephone conversations, apparently obsessed with regaining custody of his children— this fixation, combined with his gambling losses, had a dramatic effect on his life and personal finances. On the evening of November 7, 1974, the children's nanny, Sandra Rivett, was bludgeoned to death in the basement of the Lucan family home. Lady Lucan was also attacked. She later identified her ex-husband as her assailant. By the time Detective Chief Superintendent Roy Ranson arrived at Lower Belgrave Street early on Friday the 8th, the divisional surgeon had pronounced Sandra Rivet dead and forensic officers and photographers had been called to the property. Other than the front door, which the first two officers on the scene had kicked in, there was no sign of a forced entry. There was a bloodstained towel that was found in Veronica's first floor bedroom. The area around the top of the basement staircase was heavily bloodstained. A bloodstained lead pipe lay on the floor. Pictures hanging from the staircase walls were askew and a metal banister rail was damaged. At the foot of the stairs, two cups and saucers lay in a pool of blood. They were trying to have a nice tea. A rivet's arm protruded from the canvas sack, which lay in a slowly expanding pool of blood. So she was put, placed in a sack. The light fitted at the bottom of the stairs was missing its bulb. One was noted nearby on a chair. Blood was also found in various leaves in adjoining rear garden uh, areas. Officers also searched 5 Eaton Row, which is where Lucan had moved after they had gotten the divorce. And after interviewing Lucan's mother, who had called uh, to take the children to her home, uh, nothing was found. There was a on the bed a suit and a shirt lay alongside a book on Greek shipping millionaires, and Lucan's wallet, car keys, money, driving, driver's license, handkerchief, and spectacles were on a bedside table. His passport was in a drawer, and his blue Mercedes-Benz was parked outside. Uh, the engine was cold, and the battery was flat. Benson then visited Veronica Lucan at St. George's Hospital because she was attacked too. Although heavily sedated, she was able to describe what had happened to her. A police officer was left to guard her should her assailant return. Rivet's body was taken to the mortuary and a search was undertaken of all local basement areas and gardens, skips and open spaces. Everyone was very alarmed at what was happening. It was a very, like, you know, idyllic, uh, aristocratic family broke in and then all hell broke loose. After removing the rivet's body from the canvas sack and beginning the postmortem examination, pathologist uh, the pathologist told Ranson that he was certain that Rivet had been killed before her body was placed in the sack, and that, in his opinion, the lead pipe found at the scene could be the murder weapon. Her estranged husband, Roger, had an alibi for the night concerned and was eliminated from police investigation. Other male friends and boyfriends were questioned and quickly discounted as subjects. Her parents confirmed that Sandra had a good working relationship with the family, with Lady Lucan, and was really fond of the kids. Meanwhile, Lucan had yet to make an appearance, and so his description was circulated to police forces across the country. Newspapers and television stations were told only that Lucan was wanted by the police for questioning. There was no other information given about him. Hours earlier, Lucan had again called his mother around 12.30 a.m. He told her that he would be in touch later that day, but declined to speak with the police who had accompanied her to her, her flat Instead, he said he would call the police later that morning. Ranson, again the investigator, later discovered that Lucan had traveled to Uckfeld when he was called by Ian Maxwell Scott, who told him that Lucan had arrived at his home in a few hours after the murder, spoken to his wife, Susan. While there, the Earl had written two letters for his brother-in-law and posted them to his London address. He also told his friend about the letters that he had visited and people were immediately like, okay, we have to go to this house, we have to collect these letters. After reading them and noting that they were bloodstained, Ransom finally collected them. One letter was an address to his accountant and had some financial details involved. The other was dated November 7th, 1974. And it said, Dear Bill, the most ghastly circumstances arose tonight, which I briefly described to my mother. When I interrupted the fight at Lower Belgrave Street and the man left Veronica accused me of having hired him. I took her upstairs and sent Frances up to bed and tried to clean her up. She lay doggo for a bit, and when I was in the bathroom, left the house. The circumstantial evidence against me is strong in that V will say it was all my doing. I will also lie doggo for a bit, but I am only concerned for the children. If you can manage it, I want them to live with you. Coots, trustees, St. Martin's Lane, Mr. Wall will handle school school fees. V has demonstrated her hatred for me in the past and would do anything to see me accused for George and Francis to go to go through life knowing that their father had stood in the dock for attempted murder and would be too much. When they're old enough to understand, explain to them the dream of paranoia and look after them. Yours ever, John. Pretty stable, pretty chill letter. Um, Haven't... Easy going. Yeah. Have you heard doggo twice in a letter before? Never. Yeah. Alarming. Again, paranoia. You can see how he's like demonizing his ex-wife a lot in all of this when clearly, like, all signs point to him doing this thing. As the police began their murder investigation, Lucan telephoned his mother, asking her to collect the children. Again, he drove a borrowed Ford Corsair to a friend's house in East Sussex. The car was found abandoned in New Haven, its interior stained with blood. So much blood. There's, like, blood everywhere. Like, there's just an excess of it. And its boot contained a piece of bandaged lead pipe similar to the one found at the crime scene. It's like, be careful. This guy didn't know... A life of privilege, it's like he would have no idea how to cover something like this up. A warrant for Lucan's arrest was issued a few days later, and in his absence, the inquest into Rivet's death named him as her murderer, the last occasion in Britain a coroner's court ever did that. And then Lord Lucan was gone. We never see him after this, ever, ever again. In August 1975, Lucan's creditors were informed that the missing earl had unsecured debts of £45,000, and liabilities of over 1,000 pounds. His assets were estimated at 22,632 pounds. The silver was sold in March for around 30,000 pounds. so We got some of the debt covered. His remaining debts were repaired by the were re- repaid by the Lucan family trust following his disappearance in a very embarrassing gesture to kind of cover up what had happened with their with their son. So the last sighting of Lucan was at 1:15 a.m. on the 8th of no- November nineteen seventy four as he exited the driveway of the Maxwell Scott property in his friends Ford Corsair. Since then we have no definitive sightings of him. The rest remains a mystery. Should we take a little break and let's figure let's it out? have some tea and yeah. some crumpets and talk this one out. All right, so we all know dating is extremely difficult. I should definitely know because I found love on national television in front of millions of people. Hey guys, this is Kendall Long and I'm starting a new podcast called Down to Date. We have bars and apps for dating, so why not do it on a podcast? We bring in two complete strangers to see if they are down to date. We ask questions you would never want to ask on a first date, questions like, who did you vote for during the last presidential election? Or what was your first sexual experience like? We also have very heated debates Debates like, is it justifiable to murder a murderer? Very lighthearted, you know, your very typical first date conversation. Our first episode drops on September 17th, so please make sure do not miss it. You want to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure you check out Down to Date and see if people can fall in love on a podcast.
0: I think I know where there's some clues to where he is.
1: Oh, really? Yeah. I think I know where this is going. Yeah, do you? Um. Yeah, are we going over to uh, patreon.com slash ghost town pod?
0: Yes, you got it. Nice. For once. For once. I one, got it. I've been doing this for... Well,
1: can you give me some credit and pay our Patreon then? because Because it's yeah. the first time that I got it, so we have. So let's celebrate. Bonus episodes. Mm. Check it out. It helps we support the show. We got a fleet of bonies now. Yeah. Like they are... They are coming over the bend.
0: There's too many. So
1: many morsels. You got to pick them up and snack on them. There's some juicy ones in there. There are. They're actually. Okay. So it feels like there's a lot of different flavors. There's like our, you know, our meaty ones. Right. And we have our fails, which are fun as fuck. Right. And we have our, our Patreon ones, which are like all over the place in the most delightful way. So it's just like, you're getting so much.
0: A lot of the ones on, on Patreon, like I wanted to do them for Wednesday episodes and I was like, "Mm, you know what? I'm going to save it uh, for the real. save it, yeah, save it for, for the, the real
1: people yeah. that support us. I mean, everyone's a real Not person. Not the haters. The him. haters yeah. shouldn't get this. Yeah. We don't want to rob our real fans.
0: But what the haters should do is <laughs> rate and review us wherever they listen to the podcast. It's really helpful. Mm-hmm. The Apple Podcast, if you're listening there, it helps support the show. Because, you know, some people, our episodes have changed over the years. And I think mm-hmm. uh, we, we used to speak a lot in the they beginning are, and it ropes people the wrong way. Mm-hmm. Obviously the show has changed and we've taken that note. Yes. Uh, so, but they don't really I, give it more of a chance. I've taken
1: it, but not, I don't like it. But I, I take it, but <laughs> I don't like it.
0: it. <laughs> so people will just review it based on that. And that's fair, but I feel like it doesn't really represent the show. So help us out. And also if you want to, mm-hmm. we have a YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash C slash ghost town podcast. Mm-hmm. Subscribe, check out some Episodes, we have some videos on there. Yeah, it's and pretty
1: fun. Yeah, it's just
0: another w- another avenue. And then if you ever want to, you can follow us and message us on Instagram mm-hmm. at Ghost Town Pod. See?
1: That's I right. I solved the crime. That's right. I You're s- right. <laughs> now, if you put
0: little pieces, if you take certain letters of what I just said, you put mm-hmm. it together, you actually that's have
1: to You really- have to first rent a storage unit. That's the first thing you have to do. Yeah. Then you go inside there and you, you get your um, little banker's boxes. Get those those cardboard boxes. You open them up. You got to have a lot of string. And you take the string and you just string all the clues together and soon you'll go insane. Yeah. And that's it. That's it. You don't have to solve shit. No, that's it. Just be free. Yeah. Make sure your mind is free. But I gotta say, we got some more clues that we have to discover with the case. Yes, let's get on the case. We'll wily solve it. missing Lord. Yeah, we're gonna solve it right now off of this sheet of nap by 11. You know, I figure. feel like,
0: I'll just say is, it, you know, the fact that it takes place in 1974, I feel like that's current enough where, mm-hmm. and it seems like there's just a lot of evidence, even though I'm sure like forensic evidence and, mm-hmm. and, and and discovery isn't as you know sophisticated as it is now. I mean, I feel like they could probably find more information. I don't know. Yeah, I think like it's current enough that- There's like
1: enough- pools of blo- Like, that's the thing. There's so much blood involved in this. Like, they can't like take a little bit of it now, a cold case, and, D- and see it. We But like, this, listen, this is has some terms that we haven't even gotten to yet. So like, we'll get there. But it is one of those things where nowadays if this case were happening in a contemporary space, I think it would be a lot different in a lot of ways. So, and also like- the idea of aristocracy at the, in the seventies versus now, I think, is very different too. You know, it's like it back then, just the class system. I think it's been broken down a little bit more. Even though, again, in Great Britain, it's still very much alive and well. I think it's it's just didn't have that weight that it did back then and before then too. Obviously,
0: I'm sure people like they want things covered up or not mentioned. There might be a little more, mm-hmm. of a, you know, more of a
1: yeah. Well, the culture reason. then it was like buttoned up more than it ever has been. You know. It's like no Meghan Markle, right? <laughs> she really saved she saved them all. Yeah. You know? Suits. <laughs> <laughs>
0: suits on USA. Right right after Burn Notice. <laughs> oh my God. Burn notice. And wings. If somebody, if somebody put a gun to my head and says, What's burn notice about? I'd be like, well, pull the trigger. I guess. Do you think
1: Bruce Campbell in Burn Notice? I don't know. Burn notice suits.
0: Franklin and Bash.
1: To know a writer who wrote a Franklin and Batch. Yeah, it's like all those shows. I was like, yeah, I don't, you're I like couldn't what is t- this? Is like the lost. It's like they wanted to be FX. Yeah, you know, and they were like, nah, yeah. you're you're fucking USA. Yeah, <laughs> come on. So, Detective Chief Superintendent Roy Ranson initially claimed that Lucan had done the honorable thing and fallen on his own sword. A view publicly repeated by many of his friends, including John Aspinall, who shortly before his death believed the Earl was guilty of Rivet's murder and that uh, he maybe had committed suicide by scuttling his motorboat or jumping into the channel with a stone tied around his body. Uh, Veronica Lucan, his his ex-wife who was assaulted and all this, sadly committed suicide in 2017, but she believed her husband had killed himself like the nobleman that he was. Ranson later changed his view, explaining that he considered it more likely that suicide was far from Lucan's thoughts, that a rumored drowning at sea was implausible, and that the Earl had moved to southern Africa, maybe? 30 years after his murder, the detective leading a new investigation into his disappearance told the Telegraph that the evidence points towards the fact that Lord Lucan left the country and lived abroad for a number of years. Speaking to author John Pearson before she died, Susan Maxwell Scott suggested that Lucan might have had been helped out of the country by shadowy underground financiers before being judged too great a risk and then killed and buried in Switzerland. A similar story was proposed by advertising executive Jeremy Scott, who was familiar with some of the Claremont set, like the people that he had gambled with, so there's this like secret ring of gamblers, too, who will also factor into some more discoveries. Lucan's disappearance had captivated the public's imagination for decades with thousands of sightings around the world. One of the earliest, shortly after the murder, turned out to be a British ex-politician by the name of John Stonehouse, who had attempted to fake his own death. The police traveled to France in June and following that year to hunt for his lead or to get more evidence about John Stonehouse didn't work out. A sighting in Columbia turned out to be an American businessman, not Lucan. John Miller, a bounty hunter who kidnapped the fugitive train robber Ronnie Biggs, claimed that in 1982 he captured the Earl but was later exposed by the News of the World, hot, heavy journalism, that he it was all a hoax. In 2003, a former Scotland Yard detective thought he had tracked the Earl to uh, India, the man he traced was actually a a folk singer. (laughs) In 2007, reporters in New Zealand interviewed a homeless British expatriate who neighbors claimed was the missing Earl. He was not. More recently, responding to claims the two eldest Lucan children were sent to uh, Gabon, is that in Africa? Oh God, in the early 1980s so that their father might secretly watch them from a distance George Bingham denied ever visiting the country. Veronica Lucan dismissed the newspaper claims of sightings, all of them as nonsense, reiterating that in her opinion, her husband was not the sort of Englishman to go abroad. So it's all of these claims about who this person was, what he would have done, but he was still missing. Like, he was still, like, they still didn't have any answers. So, despite a huge police investigation with many incarnations, many different detectives, and lots of press interest, Lucan was not found. He was presumed deceased in uh, December 11, 1992, and declared legally dead in October 1999. A death certificate was issued in 2016. This, the, the title of this is The Howlett Zoo. We've not talked about a zoo yet at all. Four decades later, a member of the set of wealthy gamblers to which Lord Lucan belonged had given a grisly account of what he thought happened to a peer of his that had been leaked to uh, Mail Online. So Philip Mark said he was told by Stephen Raphael, another person at this Claremont club, shortly after Lucan's disappearance, that the peer traveled to a private zoo in Kent owned by his close friend, John Aspinall. According to now 73-year-old Mr. Mark, Raphael, claimed that he was among the group of friends at Howlett Zoo who discussed with Lucan about what he should do next after this horrible, grisly murder. The peer said to be concerned that he would never see his children again and his wife would get them both and his family trust, and that was something that Lucan, again, he didn't understand really what, that, what this murder would mean for his life. Lucan's estranged wife, Veronica, the Countess of Lucan, had filed for divorce two years earlier and, again, fought him for custody. Lucan looked really bad in the situation. Veronica looked looked great. She also wasn't being, like, having her phone calls recorded and things like that, which did not look good for Lord Lucan. Mr. Mark told the newspaper, the group, the gambling group, told Lord Lucan, look. It is absolutely terrible what happened. You are a murderer. You tried to kill your wife out of desperation for your children so they would free her from influence. So this is what he said. So this, the idea of him killing this housekeeper, to, but he actually wanted to kill his wife, was something that wasn't even really discussed until then. This is kind of what came forward. You tried to kill your wife out of desperation for your children so they would be free from her influence. But you've done makes absolutely sure that she will be in control of your children for years to come. You're a murderer and you're going to be in a cell for the next 30 years. This group advised Lord Lucan that the only way to avoid this was for him to vanish without a trace. His friends allegedly told him that without proof of death, probate could not be granted on his estate for at least seven years, by which time his children would be old enough to look after their own affairs. They allegedly dismissed the idea that he flee abroad, saying he was not cut out for a life on the run, and he returned to the UK and found out, um, brought back, humiliated. Instead, Mr. Marks said a pistol was placed in front of Lucan, who picked it up, went into the next room, and shot himself. The body was then fed to a tiger named Zora, who was in the zoo. I was stunned when Stephen told me this. Absolutely stunned, Mr. Mark said, but I believe that he told me was 100% the truth. I felt sworn to secrecy. It was a secret I could not betray, and until now, I have not. According to Mail Online, Mr. Mark is the source of an allegation that emerged during an earlier high court hearing to determine whether a death certificate should be issued for Lucan, allowing his son George, now Lord Bingham, to adopt his father's surname and title. During the hearing, David Van, an amateur detective who had spent years investigating the peer's dis- disappearance, claimed a member of Lucan's gambling set had emailed him to say that he had evidence that Lucan had taken his own life and never left the country. No more details were given, but Mr. Van had said he planned to interview the writer of the email and submit a statement to the full hearing. Mr. Mark said he hoped to bring the closure to this very long mystery. However, his account raises a number of questions, none of which can be answered, given the principal people involved in this are dead. Police reportedly investigated the tiger theory at the time after Aspinall's mother, Lady Osborne. So many like, this is like a British, it's like a soap opera, but lots of high court cards. The grandmother of Chancellor George Osborne, Lady Osborne, told them, the last I heard of him, Lucan, he was being fed to tigers at my son's zoo. When the police finally visited the zoo, Aspinall is said to have responded, my tigers are only fed the choicest cuts. Do you really think they're going to eat stringy old lucky? Well, it remains to be seen. A week after Ms. Rivett's body was found, Aspinall, who ran the club, the gambling club, in Mayfair, told ITV News at 10, I find it difficult to imagine him in Brazil or Haiti as a fugitive. I don't think he has the capacity to adapt. He is a man of enormous virtue and honor. He would rely on many friends to help with advice. A little bit of a clue as to maybe, perhaps, what actually happened, which is this this man, this British aristocrat, wanting to kill his wife because it would make things easier for him, actually made it more complicated because he didn't end up killing his wife, got together with his gambling club friends who told him to kill himself, and then they maybe fed him to lions in Howlett Zoo. I want to thank The Telegraph, BBC, and The Guardian for all this information. <laughs> and all this intrigue.
0: Yeah. That's a good a It's a good one.
1: it's a juicy one. It's a juicy one, yeah, a juicy juicy one. one fit for a, a lion in a public zoo. Yeah, okay. Just so
0: you know, this show is about scary stuff. So don't say I didn't warn you guys. And remember, don't be scared. Murderous Miners brings true tales of children who have killed. Premeditated murders, accidental killings and deaths. From toddlers to 18-year-old killers, no one is too young to take a life. Join me, War Baby, as I try to tell these stories of the young who've killed, the lives they took, and even the ones who've been left behind. Why do children kill? What do we do with young killers? And do they kill again? Until next time, don't
1: be scared.
0: Guys, I'll make this quick so you can get back to your murder podcast or whatever you're listening to. I'm Drama from Group Chat, the number one podcast in the world. We make cool people smarter and smart people cooler. Seriously. Our topics range from Kim Kardashian to Jeff Bezos to Donald Trump and everything in between. If you want to be entertained and educated, check us out right now in the podcast app. Just search Group Chat. By the way, The ex-boyfriend isn't the killer. It's her best friend who is. Sorry for ruining that. But now that you have a little bit more time, give us a listen.